Welcome back to Elderside, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. On this episode, we are going to be talking about the novelette A Dead Gin in Cairo by P. Jelly Clark. This was published in 2016. This story was commissioned for us to read, and we love getting commissions. And this story is an example of why I think we love getting commissions so much. I don't know if we would have come across it in our regular reading, but this story is right up probably both of our alleys, and I really enjoyed reading it. So thank you uh, to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this story. Yes, thank you so much indeed. And Brandon, yeah, you're completely right about that. I, I feel like I've been living in the world of this story for the week that I've been been thinking about it and taking notes for this episode and have been really excited to get on the mics today to talk it over. Uh, as I said, this is a, a, a novelette or you know maybe a short novella even. And so we're going to do this as a, a two-parter. Uh, you know the drill at this point, right? This episode is going to be the recap. Next time we'll do the discussion. So Let's just get right into it, Brandon. Yeah, before we get into it, I want to say that uh, P. Jelly Clark has just recently published a novel, I think, based on the characters and the setting here of this story. So if you like this episode or if you've read this story, you should definitely check out uh, P. Jelly Clark's novel based on these characters and setting. Anyway, I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's great if (laughs) this story is (laughs) any indication. Yeah, go ahead. Let's get right into the recap here. Fatma El Shah Arawi is attending the scene of a crime. She's a special investigator with the Egyptian Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities. So we're in a weird fiction urban fantasy detective story. The body at the crime scene is an old one. It's huge, twice the size of a man. It's got long, talon-like fingers, and its skin or scales, are the color of turquoise. It's also completely naked. What Fatma is looking at is the titular dead djinn of Cairo. Yeah, this is is just an absolutely brilliant opening. The story opens really with just two sentences uh, kind of set off on their own. In fact, each has uh, distinct paragraphs and they're just absolutely perfect. And I'm just going to read this opening because it's, it's so textbook and so, so good. Fatma El-Shaari, special investigator with the Egyptian Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities, stood gazing through a pair of spectral goggles at the body slumped atop the mammoth divan, a djinn. And uh, I mean, this is just perfect, right? Clark here is using this classic fantasy formula you know, for bringing your reader in, right? You give us the character name, then tell us the character's most important role, and then you give us the hook. And of course, you get bonus points, right? If the, the role and the hook also do some world building as well. And Clark has just totally nailed this. We learn right away that we're in Egypt. We learn that there are fantastical elements here. We also learn that the the vibe at least is, uh, you know, a little bit steampunk. That's what the goggles are for. And then, of course, also we learned that there is a corpse and it's the corpse of a fantastical being. So just all in all, right, these two sentences tell us so much about the world that we're ready to go already, just two sentences into this story. But they also let us know that we are in a type of police procedural because this formula is also classic to that genre as well, right? You start with your detective standing over the corpse and then you go from there. And so, I mean, this is just such efficient writing, but it at the same time is so totally evocative. And I just can't imagine a more perfect way to open this story. As someone who was attempting to write a crime story in a uh... I don't know, early 20th century 
pseudo fantasy science fiction type weird setting. I am astonished at how well Clark is able to world build and tell a detective story all at the same time. It's majestic. It's really amazing. Right. It's something that uh, you you hinted at in the the introduction, Brandon, before we got into it, that maybe actually could use a little bit of teasing out for listeners who maybe are, are new to the show or at least haven't listened to the whole back catalog, which is just to say that you and I like to write in this genre uh, a, a lot. I've written a number of stories in this genre, have managed to sell a, some small percentage of them, in, in fact. <laughs> but as I was reading this story, of course, always reading it with that eye of what am I doing wrong, right? Like what's, what is what is the writer of or what is the author of this story doing so well that I should, I should start mimicking or at least playing around with on my own? And, you know, I just thought, yeah, it's such a classic classic move to just start with the body, have your detective standing over the body. That's more classic in the police procedural than in your your private eye story, which is what I, I tend to do. But, you know, I just think it would take me three pages to do what Clark does in two sentences. And maybe that's why I'm only selling a small percentage of my stories. <laughs> Well, let's continue along with these character introductions. Also attending the crime scene is Inspector Asim Sharif, who is a member of the local police force or constabulary. He's the local police liaison to the Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities. And he's basically trying to play off the fact that the djinn is naked. It provides him with no small sense of discomfort that he's in a room with a naked djinn with Fatma, a woman. And I don't know, he's having some issue with the fact that he knows she's seeing this naked djinn. But Sharif isn't just uncomfortable with this fact. He's just generally uncomfortable with Fatma. And it's partially because of what she wears. She wears men's suits in the English style that she has had tailored to fit her. She also wears a bowler cap and carries a steel cane. So Sharif really just doesn't understand Fatma's fashion choices. And he is really ill at ease with the ways in which the world is changing, generally speaking. Right. I mean, I just waxed uh, excited, if not actually poetical, about the first two sentences, the first two paragraphs of this story. But it, you know, it doesn't stop there. Clark uses the next few paragraphs then to introduce us to you know, our main character, Fatma, uh, and then also this secondary character, Asim. And we get loads of detailed physical description, as, as you've pointed out here, Brandon. That is something I don't really care for in a story unless it's there to tell me something. And that's definitely happening here. It is there to tell us something. These descriptions of what people are are, are wearing and, and, and why they're wearing it really, I think, set the mood by, by giving us a, a visual. But they do also show us something of class and gender in the world of the story. Uh, that's certainly something that will, will come up as we're, we're going through. It's one of the, the big themes of the story. But we do also get here our first tease that this story is not historical fiction, right? We're told that it's 1912, and we know that the story is taking place in Cairo because it you know, says so in the title of the story, right? But we know here from things that uh, characters say that we're actually in an alternate Earth, and we're going to get more on that later. But let me just read the sentence where we get that. Fatma and, and Asim are having a bit of a, a back and forth here, and she says, It's 1912, a new century. Khadivs don't run Egypt anymore. The Ottomans are gone. We have a king now, a constitution. Everyone has rights, no matter their work. And 
uh, none of that is true about actual 1912 uh, Egypt. And so that's the first clue that we get that something is is is, is different here. And Clark is going to kind of lay those breadcrumbs out for us in a way that is uh, such effective, such really just exhilarating storytelling. But of course, we'll be unpacking all of that in the discussion. Yeah, as we said, Clark is really incredible at world building in this story and I'll pulling out just where those things uh, come up sort of in the flow of the story itself. So our listeners can hear where these world building details pop up, where the character introductions work, because on a structural level, I think this story is uh, sort of perfectly paced and built out to give us the exact information we need at the right time. Well, now that we've got some of the character introductions out of the way, let's investigate the crime scene. Fatma immediately notices that the jinn has died from exsanguination. Its blood has been drained. There are also a series of markings on the floor that indicate that the exsanguination was part of some sort of spell or ritual. The jinn's blood is missing from the crime scene. So you'd think if its blood was drained, uh, it might have spilled out of its body, but it's nowhere to be found. There are also four strange glyphs that Fatma has never seen before that are outside of the circle of the spell on the floor. So these glyphs are a curved horn, a sickle, an axe and hooked blade, and then there's a large one that looks like a moon shrouded in twisting vines. At first, Sharif wonders if it was ghouls that have drained the gin of blood and killed it. But although Fatma acknowledges that the number of ghoul attacks are up in Cairo and that the ministry has some suspicions about some anarcho-necromancers raising the dead, to her... This attack doesn't look like the work of ghouls. The ghouls would not have been able to stop themselves after merely drinking the jinn's blood. Sharif then goes on to give us some more details about the crime scene and the procedure that he and his other policemen have gone through. So he explains to Fatma that the jinn's body was found just past midnight by a Greek prostitute. The jinn was one of this prostitute's regular clients, but the prostitute, I guess, lawyered up before Sharif could get too much information out of her. And this is where uh, we get some of that world building stuff you talked about, Glenn. So as Sharif and Fatma continue to discuss the crime scene, uh, we learn that the jinn's name is Senar, which isn't unique because jinn are named for the regions they originally inhabit. So there are probably hundreds of jinn's named Senar. And then this is, yeah, where we learn the year is 1912 and that Egypt has undergone some major political transitions. Egypt is now a constitutional monarchy. But most importantly, related to the crime scene, is that Fatma discovers that it is very likely that the jinn's death is a suicide. The jinn had cast the spell of exsanguination itself. And so before I pause here for Glenn to jump in again, I want to mention a few more details that Fatma finds at the crime scene because they'll come up again. So there's a mural of an Ifrit uh, kneeling before a black lake. This is a mural that is called The Rising. There's also a copy of a book called the Kata al-Kimya. This is a ninth century text on alchemy. Lastly, and maybe most importantly, Fatma finds an angel feather. Uh, so to sum up, the jinn committed suicide using an exsanguination spell. 
but that has only left our detectives with more questions than answers. Yeah, I mean, even in a world with magic and magical beings, it seems like that's a pretty, pretty bleak, pretty grim way to go. And of course, it's going to turn out that that's not what's actually happened here. But, you know, we all know that because we've read at least one detective story before <laughs> in our, our lives or seen a, seen a TV show at least. But yeah, I love these uh, these details that we get here. Clark is taking a page right out of Lovecraft with his ninth century book of alchemy. Uh, the title Kitab Alchemia actually just means like literally a book about alchemy. I don't know that Clark is referring to any specific text that exists in our real world, though there are several that he could have chosen from because the ninth century was a period of scientific and cultural flourishing in the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, and it may be that there's uh, one famous alchemist in particular that he has in mind, uh, but he doesn't make that super explicit here. But really what matters, right, is that Clark is just treating this the same way that Lovecraft and Howard use their made-up books as well. And I think we should note here too, right, I think it's important to remember that the Necronomicon itself was originally written in Arabic in the 8th century, and Clark is drawing on that tradition here. Right, yeah, this is the first major hint that we get that we're essentially in a weird fiction story in the Lovecraft vein, though maybe with some uh, pointed updates to Lovecraft's storytelling style and his, uh, I don't know, political viewpoints and positions. Yeah. And, and the angel feather as well, of course, signifies that we're, we're definitely in uh, an urban fantasy flavor to this, right? Which is certainly a direction, right? That this this flavor of storytelling, this genre of storytelling has, has gone since Lovecraft was writing. So there's a lot of blending going on here. And I, I love it. Yeah. The urban fantasy occult detective is uh, kind of a great way to sell stories these days, I think, especially with the popularity of the Dresden Files and things along those lines. All right. Well, the story picks up with Fatma and Sharif in some kind of wheeled carriage. It's automated, probably. Uh, it's a steampunk story. And they are headed, as we will find out very shortly, to an angel's house to get information about that last clue at the crime scene. Sharif lets Fatma know that there's been another ghoul attack and that this time the ghoul just took a person rather than killing them. So that's weird. We also get a little more about the world here. Uh, sometime within the past two generations, a man named Al-Jahiz, a Sudanese mystic and inventor, used his knowledge of both mysticism and of machines to, quote, bore a hole to the kaf, the other realm of the jinn. So basically, Al-Jahiz tore a hole in space-time that opened Earth up to other dimensions full of magical creatures. And then he disappeared. But the result of his experiment was that Egypt became a great power on the earth, a great nation, thanks in part to the jinn who really enjoy living in Egypt and Egypt's culture. And Cairo was Egypt's, quote, beating heart. Yeah, this is a, a brilliant bit of world building. The uh, phrase that we're given here is 40 years ago, which probably doesn't mean precisely 40, right? It might mean 37, it might mean 41, but more or less, you know, we're thinking about 1872. That's that's when uh, this very, very steampunk <laughs> character here, this, uh, you know, steampunk slash urban fantasy uh, uh, character here got up to some mischief with with mystical machines, right? Which is uh, just perfect for, for this type of storytelling. Uh, so that is the point of departure from our world. We'll 
take a pretty hard look at that in the discussion episode. But I also love this tease here that there are perhaps lots of different worlds that one can travel to. You know, planes is what we would call them in D and D, and that maybe in fact Al Jahiz is doing just that. Right? There's a uh, you mentioned at the top of the show, Brandon, that Clark has actually just published a, a novel in this series, and there are a couple other uh, short fiction pieces in this series as well. This is the first of them, but. I could see Clark taking this in a different direction in the future, right? Where he gets to write uh, some kind of uh, uh, a dream quest of unknown Kadath style story just with Al Jahiz. Uh, and I would I would be very into that. Yeah, it reminds me of the, some of the Vance stories that we've read as well, uh, where the D&D wizard just ends up on another planet or something like that with mushroom people. <laughs> right. you know, something <laughs> along those lines would, would work just as well, though. I think P. Jelly Clark has it in him to update those stories, too. Well, let's head back to the story here. So after talking a little bit more about the gender norms and dynamics at play in Cairo, primarily Fatma's costuming, Fatma and Sharif arrive at a large estate that's full of mechanical beasts and other oddities. And this really gives the ground and the house the sense of being a museum. Uh, Suddenly, a giant mechanical man appears, an angel, who has housed his essence inside the powerful mechanical body that he's built. Now, Angel, we learn, is a sort of shorthand classification for these beings. No one from Earth can really agree on just what they are, but they are certainly otherworldly, at least. But in any event, everyone just calls them angels. This one has four mechanical arms and huge platinum wings decorated with gold and silver, and it greets them with a blessing from God, and it invites them to communicate why they have come to his home. We also learned that its name is Maker. Angels' names are based on their professions. Right. Something that we're learning both about Jin and these angels is that they do not give anyone else their their real names. And nothing is ever explicated about that. But you know, this is pretty standard material in, in both fantasy and folklore that uh, knowing someone's name can give you a kind of mystical power over them. And so here we have the the numinous beings in this fantastical universe operating on exactly that same type of principle. But it also just means that people get cooler names, right? And so I think uh, I think all of that is absolutely awesome. I, I do want to pause here, Brandon, and just have us enjoy some of Clark's descriptive work by reading really uh, an entire paragraph into the, into the microphone here. And this is as they are arriving at uh, the maker's home. They stopped at another set of doors that opened before their mechanical guides revealing a glass-domed room bathed in light. The air was filled with a curious blend of haunting Gregorian chants, lilting anisheed, and harmonies Fatma could not pick out, all coming from a towering tree of burnished steel. Beneath its broad canopy was a pair of bronze automata, fashioned as a man and a woman. Colorful clockwork birds sat above on the tree's outstretched branches between metallic green leaves that swayed as if in a breeze. Their open beaks poured music in time to a swirling display of light, like thousands of fireflies moving to the same rhythm. And this is a paragraph that's just here as they are on their way from the crime scene to 
interrogate really their their first suspect or you know, interview their first suspect, who's a fantastical being, a, a numinous being. And so there's a lot for us as readers to be really excited about in the plot beats of this and even the fantastical elements of this. But Clark doesn't skimp here on painting an absolutely beautiful picture of what this room looks like as they walk into it. I mean, a lot of a lot of what's being described here is fantastical. It certainly is all very steampunk and interesting in its own right. But Clark is doing some excellent, excellent descriptive work here, just hitting us on all the senses. We get this melange of different musical styles here. We learn what it it smells like. We learn what it all looks like with this really exquisite detail. And it builds up this mood that, you know, even if you're you're anxious, you're in a hurry, right? You're eager for the plot beats here, the storytelling beats here. This can work on your subconscious and just bring you into what this world feels like. It's It's so expertly done. I really love this passage and I'm really glad you read it because there was a lot that I had to uh, cut out to focus on the plot beats in the recap. And this was a paragraph that I also wanted to read into the mic. I love every detail that Clark has put into this paragraph to give us a sense of what makes Maker's House like a museum. Well, Maker's House is not just a museum. He's also working on something. And what Maker is working on is a giant clock that we learned through the conversation between Maker and Fatma has something to do with space and time. Maker answers some of Fatma's questions about the angel feather that she and Sharif have found at the dead Jin's house. Basically, Maker agrees to help Fatma and Sharif with information. Maker it turns out, makes all of the mechanical bodies for angels. So he knows exactly whose feather the body came off of. And he tells Fatma and Sharif that this feather belongs to an angel called Harvester. Harvester can be found in the cemetery. And the cemetery is not a place that Fatma and Sharif actually want to go. First of all, because it's in the slums. But second of all, they know it as the city of the dead. Yeah, this might be a good time for me to offer up some notes about Cairo. One of the things that appeals to me the most about this story, also about detective fiction in general, is that the urban setting takes on such an important role, really kind of you know, becomes a a character in in the story. And when I was a kid, also really an adolescent, this type of fiction was more or less how I toured the world. And as I have actually gotten to tour at least some parts of the world with my body, as well as my imagination as I've gotten older, I still will make it a point to visit locations that I know from stories anytime I you know, end up in a new place. So you know, in London, I gave myself a self-guided Sherlock Holmes tour. San Francisco, I've done the same thing with Sam Spade and, and, and so on. And Clark really serves up Cairo for us. I mean, just extraordinarily well. And I, I want to point out a few things. So the place where they met the the angel maker here was a, a former palace, which is why it, it looks like a museum. And that palace is the Jazeera Palace that was built in the 1860s. It was built for the purpose of housing foreign dignitaries, and it is in a super posh neighborhood on an island in the Nile. And today, this building, this palace, it's still there. It's actually part of the Cairo Marriott. So you could 
totally go stay there. I mean, it's, you know, it's a five-star hotel in like a world-class city, but you know, there are rooms for rent. And then from there, right, our characters are going to go to the city of the dead, which is exactly what it says it is. It is a necropolis that was originally outside the walls of medieval Cairo. Uh, Really, it was I think properly we would have described it as outside of the adjacent city of Fustat, but now that's really all just one thing here in modernity. And so really what what this is, the City of the Dead, is is this sprawling complex. It covers about four miles, and it is just full of different types of burial sites. Some of these are small, you know, modest uh, sites, but many of them are massive mausoleums. And then there are also a number of other Islamic religious buildings in this area, and at least since the the High Middle Ages, so you know, thinking about the the 12th, 13th centuries, loads of people have lived here because actually loads of people work at cemetery complexes, and also then some of the religious buildings here are clerical schools, and so there were students and also teachers and staff living here in the City of the Dead. And so this whole area, this four-mile area, is just this really cool maze of cemeteries and villages. And as I said, in the Middle Ages, this was on the outskirts of Fustat, but today it really is just in central Cairo because the city expanded so much in the 19th century, you know, which is like basically every city on the planet did at that point, right? <laughs> and so then this essentially also became a neighborhood for the poor, which often meant uh, migrants moving into the big city from the countryside. And you can easily find photographs of this area from the period that this story is taking place in, you know, the the fin de siècle, the sort of period around the decades around 1900. Just Google that and you'll see some really breathtaking photos. I mean, it's, it's very well worth doing. It's just a cool place to look at. And Clark, as you said, does a great job describing it as well. So Fatma and Sharif have headed off to the slums on the angel's advice here. And... It's real rough territory, as you can imagine. Fatma and Sharif are surprised, though, to discover that it's even rougher than they thought because they can't get anyone to act as a guide in the cemetery. The poor people, they think, should do anything for a little money. But apparently the ghoul attacks have gotten so bad and no one is doing anything about it. Not the police, not the ministry that Fatma works for. That the swamp dwellers won't go into the cemetery at all, not even for money. Fama and Sharif arrive at the mausoleum that is supposed to be Harvester's home. And Fama wonders why an angel would get the name Harvester or give themselves the name Harvester and also live in a cemetery. But before she can think too much about it, she is overcome by smells of death, and other more indefinable but no less terrible things. As Fatma and Sharif investigate inside the mausoleum, they find the lifeless mechanical body of the angel that has been drained of its essence. Fatma swings the lantern she's carrying around and it lights upon the floor of the mausoleum and this is when she sees the same four glyphs that she saw at the Jin's house. And then she's attacked. She and a ghoul tussle for a little while when Fatma gains the upper hand and eventually shoots the ghoul through the head. But before she shoots it, the ghoul croaks out the phrase, the rising. And this is something only Fatma hears. Sharif doesn't hear it. 
before Fama can even process this, she realizes her lantern has lit again upon a writhing mass of ghouls feasting on the angel flesh. And so her and Sharif just open fire basically into the mass, killing some of the ghouls, while others try to flee past them without attacking them out of the mausoleum. So once again, Fatma and Sharif have found another body along with the means of its death and are left with more questions than when they started the investigation. I, I love this bit that you you narrated, Brandon, about Fatma thinking about you know why would someone take the name Harvester in in a in necropolis, <laughs> right? Because of course I don't know. Do any of us actually think of actual harvesters? <laughs> you know, when we hear that word anymore, that word has taken on such a a sinister meaning in horror literature. I mean, this is even how the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer opens. It opens up with you know a two parter called the Harvest, right? Right. And it's, you know, also in. Involves uh, being in in graves with uh, uh, supernatural creatures as well. But right back to what's actually going on here, right, is that uh, we are at a section break now at this point. And this encounter with the ghouls, it really feels like the stakes have been raised here, even though we as readers don't really know anything new at this point. New about the case, I mean, right? We haven't gained any new information about the case, about the trail that our detectives are on, but still, suddenly it feels like there's jeopardy here, right? Like, this is serious business. And it's awesome. The the scene is gripping. This description of the ghouls feasting on the angel flesh, I mean, this reminded me of the way that the the Will Smith I Am Legend movie depicts the zombies, and specifically when they are in a dark building, all eating a deer, just standing around in a circle, kind of shambling. Uh, That is a scene in that movie that really creeps me out, and Clark here has given me the same exact feelings, and it really creeped me out. It's an amazing scene. It's also a a much-needed bit of action, because at this point in the story, we just have our characters going around, talking to people and investigating, and you're right, that this is the right time to raise the stakes and just give us that action, to show us the threat that are the ghouls, uh, to show us that Fatma and Sharif can hold their own in a fight. It's perfectly paced, I think, as I said earlier. Uh, But now Fatma and Sharif have left the necropolis and they have gone to a coffee shop to basically do a rundown of the case for our benefit as readers. Uh, The Harvester, it turns out, was the necromancer making all the ghouls that were kidnapping people in order to build a, a ghoul army for some unknown reason. Senar, the dead jinn, has been exiled from his home lodge for improper practices that may or may not relate to a suicide. Fatma and Sharif have no idea why the jinn has killed himself, though it seems pretty clear that the ghouls have turned on their maker. They just don't know what's going on. And it doesn't really matter because as far as Sharif is concerned, these cases are closed. But Fatma isn't satisfied, and we're not satisfied with that either as readers. What happened to the jinn's blood? Why were the same four glyphs found at both crime scenes? What's the deal with the rising, right? But these aren't really matters for the police. So if Fatma wants to look into them, she can tomorrow after getting a good night's sleep. That's what Sharif suggests they do anyway. So Sharif heads home, and Fatma thinks that maybe she should head home Two. 
but she's got to walk around for a little bit to clear her head. And she's thinking about the case and wandering around Cairo and pretty much gets nowhere. She checks the time on her pocket watch, which is a gift from her watchmaker father, and she puts it back into her pocket. And as she does so, someone bumps into her, and it takes her a second to realize that her pocket watch has been stolen by a pickpocket. So she looks around to see where the pickpocket ran off to, and she sees them standing at the end of the street, dangling the pocket watch, goading Fatma into a chase. Fatma chases the pickpocket into an alleyway, and then is attacked by this pickpocket, who turns out to be a woman who is wearing some sort of long silver talons as a weapon. Fatma and the woman fight. Fatma's suit is torn, and the woman gets the upper hand here. But rather than being harmed or harming her, uh, the pickpocket lets Fatma up, flirts with her a little, gives her back her pocket watch, and tells her that Fatma should meet this woman, the pickpocket, at the House of the Lady of the Stars, because there are people there who have more information about the rising. Then the pickpocket scampers away, and Fatma leaves the alley to go to the House of the Lady of the Stars, a house of a fortune teller. So narratively, at this point, we have solidly wrapped up the first act and are now a little bit of the way into the second act of this story. And so in your classic hard-boiled detective story, this is where the detective starts to flounder a bit, uh, starts to think about giving up the case. And then this is also where Raymond Chandler, who you know wrote these things uh, almost better than anyone, often advised just having some dudes with guns break down the door. And... Uh, that's essentially what Clark has done here, except it's a, a pickpocket with some uh, some real ninja properties here as well. <laughs> but it's a good move. And, and, and in any case, right, we're, we're about to have the criminal underworld opened up to us a bit more, which is exactly what this story needs right now. Right. So Fatma travels through a late night market on her way to the house of the Lady of the Stars. Just pointing that out because it's a beautiful another beautiful descriptive paragraph in the story. And when she gets to the house, she barges in and tries to bust her way in to see this woman. Uh, but the door lady forces Fatma to be polite before she lets her into the house. And then Fatma is told after being polite that a woman named Marira is expecting her. And so Fatma ends up in a hidden room where a dozen or so women are worshiping an idol of Hathor. And we get a little world building note here that explains that since the arrival of magic and the jinns and angels coming to earth, some of the old gods, particularly the ancient Egyptian gods, have begun to be worshiped again in secret. And this house of the Lady of the Stars is essentially a house of worship that is fronted by fortune tellers. Fama is led to Marira, who is flanked by a female jinn, uh, Jan, and then also by the woman who attacked her, whose name we learn is Siti. The Jan tells Fatma that the end of the worlds is nigh. And then Marira flips over some tarot cards and each of these tarot cards displays one of the four glyphs that Fatma had seen at both crime scenes earlier that night. And now Fatma wants some answers. 
So remember that Greek prostitute from earlier? After she discovered the djinn's body and answered some questions from the police, she sought sanctuary at this house here. And now it's time for us to hear her tale. She was a client of the djinn, and he became obsessed with her. And he ended up letting things slip that maybe he shouldn't have. Things about the other worlds, things about places where gods lived. Gods that could curse you with madness if you dared to speak their name. It turns out that the jinn had their own gods that they worship in the Kaf, and some of those gods want out. They want to inhabit Earth and make it the dark sort of place they like to be. The gods of the jinn taking over the Earth is what's known as the Rising. And Senar, the jinn, believed that if he died, he would live again for his role in bringing the jinn gods to Earth. The Greek woman tells Fatma that the jinn was somehow in cahoots with the angels and that it was she who left the angel feather as a clue so that Fatma or Sharif or whomever could put this whole puzzle together if when they needed to. So when the time was ready for the rising, Senar would take his own life. This basically means that the rising is at hand. All of this is part of some old jinn prophecy. Three Beings need to give their lives willingly, and it looks like two of the three have already, Jin and the Harvester. And that leaves there only one being left to take their life before the old Jin gods invade and destroy Earth. The third being, according to the prophecy, would be known as the Builder. He would be the one to find a way to let the old gods in through some weird alignment of time and space. And hey, that sounds a lot like the maker and his clock. So Fatma puts all this together and realizes she's got to get to maker and fast. Yeah, this is uh, an awesome scene. I mean, the point of this all, right, is to raise the stakes. And so we now know that this case is not just a case that you can shrug your shoulders about, right? This case is about saving the entire world. And so now we're primed to go get into the, the real action of the final act. But what stands out to me here really is the way that Clark is weaving in medieval Islamic cosmology in very much the same way that we have seen other writers do this with medieval Christian cosmology. Clark has built this cosmology around the idea of, of Kaf, uh, which you actually mentioned also earlier, Brandon, and then presents that as a, a, a kind of place between the various worlds. In medieval Islamic cosmology, Kaf is a mountain. Sometimes it's the mountain that the earth rests on and so is really outside of our possible experience. But also sometimes it's just in a remote part of the earth on like an island. Uh, in fact, it, it came actually to be located at the North Pole by you know geographers who had never actually been to the North Pole, but were doing a kind of... Uh, a theoretical geography, which is a, a you know a, a big genre of writing, actually in pre modernity. <laughs> but you know, even thinking about that, I, I actually can't help but think that Lovecraft missed a really great opportunity to draw on this tradition in At the Mountains of Madness by locating some attributes of Mount Kaf in Antarctica. He didn't do that. Would have been cool if he had, though. But at any rate, it is often regarded as well as the home of the jinn and other supernatural creatures. And that is what Clark is really doing with it here, adding in some imaginary physics in order to render this 
into a sort of steampunk and urban fantasy type of, of story as well, type of element as well. But then also giving all of this a really awesome cosmic horror twist with the talk of old gods coming to Earth and driving us mad. So there is a a lot going on here uh, in, I don't know, this kind of like a cooking metaphor, I think, that I want to use here, right? Where Clark is taking a lot of different spices, putting them all in the same pot and letting it stew for a while. And it's turning out really well so far. It it is turning out really well. He's picked the perfect genre to, to put all this stuff together with. All right. So now CT and Fatma have teamed up and they are racing through the streets in CT's like hover car or something to get to Maker's Estate. I, th- I think it's a flying carpet. It might. Oh, do you, is that what you got from there? Well, yes. I mean, it does feel like a hover car, but I think that they, they are going up sort of above a kind of street level. So it's not hover car the way that we think of in science fiction. I think this is Clark here playing with uh, one of certainly the, the more famous elements of the Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights uh, in in you know, really just drawing on the cartoon, the Disney version of Aladdin, I think. That's amazing. I did not put that together, but that fits so much better with the imagery he gives us than a hover car in the story. <laughs> <laughs> so once CT and Fatma arrive at Maker's house, Fatma runs inside with her gun out to confront Maker. Inside the Maker's house, they see the clock that is been completed and it now has some additional adornments including the jinn's blood and then also some bodies of the ghouls that race past Fatma and Sharif at the cemetery uh, because they need the angel flesh and it's been stored in the ghoul's stomach I guess flesh in essence here with regards to angels might be used interchangeably it's a really gruesome sight and Maker is at the center of all of it so Fatma can now try to get Maker to shut off the clock. That's her goal. But obviously, Maker doesn't want to. And this is where we get Maker's villain monologue. Basically, what Maker wants to do is have these old gods destroy the world. He thinks that humans are awful. They destroy everything and they fight every each other and they corrupt everything. But it's in Maker's nature to be perfect, like God, like the one who made him. And Maker wants to make things that are actually perfect. So he's going to let the old gods out so that they can destroy the world. And then once the world is fully destroyed, he'll be able to start anew. He'll be able to make a perfect world. Uh, both Fatma and CT think that this is a pretty bad theology and maybe reflects poorly on the God that Maker worships, uh, but they can't reason with Maker. They can't get him to shut off the clock because he's insane. And in fact, he's so committed to his mad plan that at this point, he kills himself. He's the final willing victim that is needed in order to open the hole to the cough. All right. At this point in the narrative, we have a big action scene where Fatma and CT have to fight a bunch of tentacles that are worming their way out of a widening portal that is in the clock. CT keeps the tentacles busy while Fatma finds a way to shut down the clock. And eventually she uses her father's pocket watch, the one he gave her as a gift, to disrupt the flow of the pendulum swing, which causes the whole clock to explode and the rift to close. Fatma and CT are kind of laying a little bit dazed in the rubble. 
They eventually are able to move, and Fatma is now looking around for her trademark bowler and cane. But then CT appears out of nowhere, holding the pocket watch that saved the day. Fatma takes the pocket watch from CT graciously, and then the police arrive. They'd called them earlier, including Sharif, and CT's like, I don't want to have anything to do with cops. So she leaves. But before she leaves, she invites Fatma out on a date. Then Fatma turns to the face of the police, knowing that she'll have a lot of explaining to do and that Sharif will be stuck with all the paperwork. And that's the end of the story. That was an action-packed climax. I mean, there was so <laughs> much that happened there. It was kind of bonkers, but super awesome. I, I loved it. And yeah, I mean, this finale is basically the exact plot of Lovecraft's masterpiece, The Dunwich Horror. That's something we're going to want to talk about in the discussion episode. But yeah, it was it was just awesome. I mean, this was a very satisfying story that has all of the ingredients to become a series, of course. And as, as you said, Brandon, it in fact has. And uh, you know you can see all of that right here. We've got this longer novella. I think there's one more short story and then this full-length novel that you mentioned at the top of the show, Brandon. And I'll just say right now, at this point, I'm hooked. I would love to go check all those out. It'd be easier for us to do if we're going to do episodes on it because I really only get to read if we're going to record about it. But uh, uh, I want to carve out some time in my life to, to read more about this world. Yeah, me too. I really loved this story and uh, I can't wait for us to get to the discussion. And well, I think that's what we're going to go do now. So that's going <laughs> to do it for this episode, the recap episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. And let me say a heartfelt thanks again for this commission. Commissions are so important for the health of the network, for the longevity of the network. But also, this was just a really cool story that we would not have gotten to talk about otherwise. So super excited about that. And yeah, next time, really just a few days from now, shorter than our usual turnaround, we will be back with a discussion about this story. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.